0: Called to, to be, be saints, saints together, together with all, all those, those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the The body body does not not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to be, as you can tell, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're looking at all of um, verses 1 through 18. So, got a big text this morning. Um, If you're new to the transit, What we do is we like to go through books of the Bible and study these together. And so if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're going through and continuing a series looking at 1 Corinthians, which is the Apostle Paul. He planted this church in this place called Corinth, and now there's correspondence with him and the church. And so if you were here last week, uh, we covered 1 Corinthians 8, and the title of the message last week was True Love Limits freedom. And so what we saw last week is that the Corinthian church was asking the Apostle Paul, it's kind of like a question and answer form, they're asking him some questions about what does it look like to be a convert to Christianity to follow this Jesus, but still live in like an overtly pagan city like Corinth uh, and down to down to the specifics of the fact that everything is pagan modified in the culture down to the food you would eat in the marketplace the meat sold in the marketplace would, would more often than not have been offered up in sacrifice to the you know, so that's the dilemma they 're facing how to be in but not of Corinth as Christians and do all that they do for the glory of God. And so there's two groups we saw last week. There was the stronger group at Corinth, the more knowledgeable, mature Christians who knew that idols were essentially nothing, and that there was only one God and Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. And so these stronger, more mature believers would go to the marketplace and eat whatever was before them. They would actually even go, Paul would say this is probably going too far. He'll say this in 1 Corinthians 10. They would even go into the temple. And uh, uh, people would have parties in the temple banquet halls there, and they would partake of food that was actually offered up in their presence as as an act of worship too. I to, I don't suppose saying that's going too far, but that stronger camp abused their freedom in Christ to, what Paul would say, to the destruction of the weaker brothers. And so there's a second group at Corinth, probably the more recent converts, maybe uh, people a couple months into this whole Jesus thing. Uh, they've, they've turned from their paganism, and now they want to worship Jesus with everything they have. So, so that group abstained from any and all forms of temple idolatry. They would not go to the temple, and they assuredly would not buy any food in the marketplace that was offered up to false gods. And what's interesting is the question then that, would, that would, uh, anyone would pose would be, well, which group needs to change? Is it the stronger that needs to change their ways of thinking and acting, or is it the weaker that needs to change their way of thinking and acting? And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8 is he actually just exhorts the stronger to go low and to descend and to lay aside their freedoms in Christ to build up their stronger, their weaker brother. He's saying true love limits your freedom, so much so that in verse 13 we call it the vegan resolution, where the apostle Paul with gusto says, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never touch a filet again right? Why? Because that's what Jesus Christ did for us. That's the good news of the gospel, not God sitting on his throne demanding that we ascend through our good work up to him. It's Jesus Christ taking on flesh and descending into our depravity, taking on our humanity so that we could have life everlasting in him. That's the good news of the gospel. And so if last week in chapter 8, Paul is telling the Corinthians, hey, uh, let me tell you what true love looks like. Let me tell you what it looks like to lay aside your rights for the sake of your weaker brother. Now, in chapter 9 in our text today, Paul is saying, now let me show you. I told you in chapter 8, now I'm going to show you how in my own life I have laid aside my rights for your benefit, Corinthians. And he's going to show them in uh, in a couple chapters later. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me, Corinthians, as I follow Jesus as I follow Jesus the Savior who, who laid aside his rights, uh, gave, his, uh, gave of his very life for us, now I'm calling you to do the same because true love limits freedom. And uh, the title of my talk this morning is, is We're Free. As we sang this morning in our worship songs, we're free but, and yet bound by the gospel. And what we're going to be looking at this morning is how the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it sets us free in incredible ways. Right, church? Absolutely. And yet, and yet, it also binds us in love to Jesus Christ and to our fellow man. And it compels us to lay aside our rights, our, our freedom in a way, in loving service, so that God would be glorified in how we love one another. We're free and yet bound by the gospel. That's what we'll see uh, this morning. And my hope this morning, my prayer, is that the Holy Spirit uh, would come and give us what we can't muster up ourselves, a treasuring and a seeing and a, and a savoring of Jesus Christ. Because, listen, the only way it is possible, the only way it is possible for you or for me to lay aside certain rights for the sake of others is when Jesus Christ is more valuable to us than those rights. It's the only way that's possible. as we're going to look at at the end here. But if we love our freedom in Christ more than we love Jesus, we're never going to lay aside or limit our freedoms in service to those that need Jesus. Um, And so let me pray and then we'll dive into this text. Father, you are great and you're a good God and your children have gathered here this morning and the thought just occurred to me as I was holding my daughter in worship, that you're holding us in uh, your arms as we're crying out our praise to our good father. You've been so good to us, you who have given us your son, how much uh, more will you give us all things? And so we're here today, we're, we're, we're here today uh, uh, gathering and worship under the banner of Jesus Christ and him crucified on for, our, uh, for us, for our sakes. And uh, we're only here because of your grace. We're only here because you're pursuing us. And so I pray, um, Holy Spirit, that you come and you move in power, stir our hearts and our affections for, for Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, you'd call call, call your lost children home this morning. And so would you increase, would you magnify in our hearts and our minds, and would I decrease up here? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So three things, really simple outline this morning, three things we're going to be looking at. One, we're going to be looking at Paul's defense of his apostleship. Two, Paul's description of his rights as an apostle. And then three, Paul's death to all of those rights. And so the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is Paul's defense of his apostleship. He says in verses 1 through 3, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So it helps us to ask, what in the world is Paul talking about here? What Paul's doing is that there are some critics. You know, haters are gonna hate, right? And so there's some critics at Corinth who were dogging on the Apostle Paul for not being an effective and a legitimate. Apostle. You might be asking, Nick, what in the world is an apostle? Well, in the Greek, uh, that word apostle simply means a messenger, an ambassador, a, a sent one, if you will. So um, for, this, for the intent and purpose of the sermon, there are, this isn't technical, so don't take this to the bank, but there are little A apostles, and there are big A apostles, okay? All of Christians, if you're here to say you're a follower of Jesus, you and I are little A apostles. We're ambassadors to the king. We have been sent by Jesus to deliver this good news of this gospel. All of us are little A apostles. However, all throughout the New Testament, there are these big A apostles, the few and the proud. And, and, and this apostolic office, this was a special, one-time foundational office in the body of Christ where Jesus Christ himself called and commissioned certain men to speak and act with his authority to build the foundation for the church. Uh, there's some debate on who, who these apostles were in regards to, we know a lot of them, but there were a few, but there was less than 20, less than 20, to give you a frame of reference for how many were the big A apostles. This is what Wayne Grudem has to say. These apostles, capital A apostles, he didn't say that, I said that, but these apostles had unique authority to found and govern the early church, and they could speak and write the words of God. Many of their written words became the New Testament scriptures, In order to qualify as an apostle, someone, one, had to have seen Christ with his own eyes after he rose from the dead, and two, had to have been specifically appointed by Christ as an apostle. So the capital A apostles were essentially the founding fathers of the church, right? Like this nation has some founding fathers who spoke and acted with authority, and what they did hundreds of years ago still binds us today in this nation. And in the same way, these apostles spoke and act with the authority of Jesus, so much so that in a church in the 21st century, in Alexandria, Virginia, are coming together under the authority of the words of this apostle Paul as the very words of God and submitting to that. Okay, And so Paul here is making the case that he is a capital A apostle. He had seen the risen Lord Jesus, and Jesus called and commissioned him to do that. And the proof is in the pudding. If you're here today and you're a skeptic, uh, a a defense of, of the validity of what Jesus Christ can do in his life is go study Paul's life. He was a murderer of Christians, and then something happened. He was en route to murder Christians, and then Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and changed that man's life from a murderer to a missionary, and probably not even arguably one of the most influential man, uh, persons in, in the history of the world, the Apostle Paul. That's what Jesus Christ has the power to do, um, and uh, a couple things stick out in these first couple verses. One, first thing that stuck out to me as I was studying this, is this is really messed up with the Corinthian church, right? Like, why you got to hate? Why you got to dog on the Apostle Paul? Why you got to? Why you got question his entire ministry and the effectiveness of his ministry? That's messed up, in my opinion. They owe why? Why is that messed up? They owe their very existence as Christians to the ministry of this man, and and, and now they're going to go and challenge and question him. And the, the second thing that strikes me is Paul's response to them. And they're challenging his apostleship. My my uh, wife and I were. Uh, Driving out to Richmond this weekend, we had a discussion about this text. And by the way, quick disclaimer: you need to, um, if you get a chance, thank my wife for all the screening she does of my sermons. Um, And I tell her that she has saved me from getting fired so many times. It's like, do not say that joke; it's not funny. And anyway, so, (laughs) so we're talking about this text, and she goes, "Man, like we're reading it and just you know, just processing it." She's like, "Paul, you know, like we're talking about. It's like seems initially his tone, his rhetoric seems like harsh." like resentful. There's 16 questions in this text, 16. He just lobs. He says, this is my defense of those who would critique me. So the question is, is it harshful or resentful, or is Paul speaking the truth in love? Is he doing the work of a good shepherd, a good parent, right? Like if you're here today and you're a parent, a lot, uh, probably 99.9% of your work is reframing little mindsets, right? Reframing them, uh, their mindsets towards reality, what is true, so for example, this happened a couple weeks ago. It happens more often than I care to admit, but my, my oldest daughter was just sitting at her chair in the kitchen, just lounging. And, and she just says one word to her, to her parents. She goes, pouch, pouch. Like, and in that one word, what she's saying is, give me a pouch right now. Do not delay. I want a pouch. And if you don't know what a pouch is, it's these, you know, they grind up vegetables and they sell them for 15 bucks in a little pouch. Anyways, <laughs> um, and I had to check myself. And I had to do some reframing work in love. And I said something to the effect of, hey, Kelsey, so one, um, let's try that again. Two, um, mommy and daddy are not your personal waiters and waitresses. Like, that's not, that's, not how, that's not our identity. Actually, proof of your existence is proof of my identity as a parent, which means I have the authority to tell you something like that. I didn't really say that, but for the sake of the sermon illustration. Um, but we got to reframe some mindsets, right? Like, Like, that's even rude if you're at a restaurant and you just yell, like, you know, filet to your waiter. Like, that's rude. Let alone, you're not going to talk to my wife like that, your mother. And so, I think what Paul's doing here is he's taking the time to reason with them as a good parent. Kind of getting on one knee and taking the time to speak the truth in love and reframe their mindset of their attitude towards Christian leaders and him in particular. Um, and what, what I love is, is this, is that even though they dismissed him, he didn't dismiss them. And it wasn't all of them. There were some in the church. Uh, uh, There's a small pride group of critics. But, but Paul takes time to reason with them in love. Even though they dismissed him, he didn't dismiss them. And he hasn't given up on them yet. And so you might be asking, well, why did the Corinthians challenge his apostleship? And the reason they challenged him being an apostle is because Paul was embarrassing to them. Paul was an embarrassment because he was the opposite of the Greco-Roman ideals of that society. The Corinthians valued worldly wisdom, wealth, status, honor, so these, these Gre- Greco-Roman itinerant philosophers and orders, they'd come to cities and towns and they would speak with fancy words of wisdom. They would give TED Talks. They'd make a lot of money. They'd be rubbing shoulders with all the wealthy people in the city and they had honor, they had esteem. Paul was the exact opposite. Paul says, as we've been going through First Corinthians, Paul says, when I came to you, I came to you with much fear and trembling, not powerful rhetoric. And the, the wisdom that I brought you wasn't the wisdom of the world. It was the foolishness of the gospel. The foolishness of, of Jesus Christ and him crucified and what that means. That means now that, that love goes low, love descends to the weaker brother, not demand man, the weaker brother come up to us. And in addition to that, Paul refused, as we'll see, Paul refused to take support, financial support from the church at Corinth. He refused to do what everybody else would do in that day and age. So the church is looking at this and they're saying, if Paul was a capital A apostle, he would have the Mercedes Benz. If Paul was a capital A apostle, he'd have the $6,000 suit. If Paul was a capital A apostle, he'd be rubbing shoulders with the wealthy celebs on the Greek Isles outside of Corinth. You know, like, that's, that's, what a, you know, he would, that, that's what that apostleship would get him. Honor, esteem, wealth, because that was the ideals of the culture at Corinth 2,000 years ago. You better believe that's still in our culture today. This is what Paul Miller in his new book, J. Curb, has to say. In the Roman world, a traveling teacher such as Paul would befriend a wealthy person who would support the teacher financially. In turn, the teacher would give honor and wisdom to his patron. So that's what the Corinthians are expecting Paul to do. They're expecting him to kind of um, kiss the ring, if you will, of the wealthy people at Corinth, the wealthy tithers, and and kind of be locked into what they want him and how they want him to behave. And Paul says, I ain't got any time for that. I'm not going to do that. Paul is no mere traveling teacher. He's a highly educated upper-class Jewish scholar and Roman citizen who can rub shoulders at the highest levels of society. That is all the more reason for him to attach himself to a wealthy person. Not only does Paul not participate in this patronage system, he does something no Roman elite would do. He works with his hands. Manual labor was beneath the upper classes. Paul was a tent maker. That's how he supported himself in ministry. This is what Paul Miller says. So tent-making isn't just a side job for Paul. By doing it, he degrades himself. Instead of reaching up for the protection of a wealthy patron, Paul descends into all that filth. And why? Why does he do this? Love. Love for the lost. Love for the weak. For the Apostle Paul, true apostleship, it goes low, not demanding rights, but laying aside those rights so as not to put any obstacle in the way of people coming to know and follow Jesus Christ true leadership, true love, true apostleship goes low, goes low rather than um, rather than, than rise up to the higher echelons of society so that everyone will honor you instead of you're, what you're doing there is you're pointing people to yourself and not to your Savior. Now, there's anything wrong with that, but if, if your heart and your pride is wrapped up in that, and so for Paul, that wasn't the case. For Paul, he was going to do what Jesus Christ modeled to him and to descend. And so um, returning to our text, in the first couple verses, we see four questions back to back. Paul says, am I not free? Church, if you would question me, am I not free? Do I have the same freedom uh, in Christ that you have? Secondly, he says, am I not an apostle? He says, this is my identity. With my identity comes authority. I am an apostle. Three, he says, I have seen the risen Lord Jesus. That's, he's talking about the qualification for apostleship. And then four, he says, he says, and then the proof is in the pudding. The proof of my apostleship is in your existence. He says, you are the seal of my apostleship and a seal would confirm and authenticate something, and Paul's saying, your existence as a church at Corinth authenticates my authority, and with uh, the the title being an apostle does come the authority, and with that authority comes certain rights, if you will, And, and that's what leads us to our second point in this outline is Paul's description of his rights in verses 4 through 14. Quick disclaimer, there's a lot to cover here. And you don't want me to spend a lot of time digging into the weeds of this, so we're going to do like a flyover. If you want more info, I'd gladly point you to some resources that you can nerd out on later this week if you want to study this. But Paul's description of his rights, the first thing he points them to in verse 4 is the apostles' right to certain food and drink, a.k.a. a right for the church to meet their basic needs. Okay? He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink. He's saying, Corinthians, we're itinerant and missionaries. Is it too much for you to, for, uh, for us to ask you to meet our basic needs of food and drink? Like, hey, can, can we can we eat? Can we drink? Can you put us up in, in a house and, 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 and provide us with the basic needs to survive? Is that too much of a burden for the church to bear when we come and visit? Um, next up, Paul points uh, them to the apostles' right to gospel companionship uh, for the church to meet the basic needs of not just the apostles, but their family members as well. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Paul's not making an argument that apostles can get married. Nobody actually would have doubted that um, in the early church. No, he's, he's arguing for the right to not only take along a believing spouse on your, your, uh, you know, your, your missionary journey, but also but also um, uh, to have the church meet their needs as well. And say, hey, hey we'll, we'll let you come this apostle come to our house and we'll feed you, but I'm not going to make you know, three more eggs for your wife. She's got she's to bring eggs from the market, right? Or she has to go find lodging elsewhere. We're not going to pay for her needs and meet the family's needs as well. Paul's saying, is that too much? Is that too much to ask you? And then the third thing he points them to, and he gives five reasons, this is the majority of our text, is his right, the apostle's right, and particularly Paul's right to financial support, financial support from the churches they serve. And he gives five reasons. And it's fitting that the lead pastor, Jeff, would be out of town, and I have to preach uh, about uh, the Lord's people giving unto Christian leaders. So reason number one he gives is common practice. In verses six through seven, Paul says, look at the rest of the world. Look at verses six through seven. He says, is it only Barnabas and I, who have no right to refrain from working for a living, uh, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Uh, Paul is, is challenging those that would question the validity of a preacher of the gospel getting paid for his labor. He's challenging that. And what he's doing, the first thing he points them to is, is common practice. He says, look at the farmer. He gets his living from being a farmer. Look at the soldier. He gets his living from being a soldier. What would it, he's like, imagine a farmer would have to work from, from sun up to sun down just so he could be a farmer. Then he has to go to the factory and work a night shift just so he can be a farmer free of charge. You're working 90-hour work weeks. He says, that's not common, common practice is you get paid from the work you do. It's the first thing he points them to. Then the second thing he points them to is scriptural precept points them to the Old Testament law. He says in verse eight, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He's quoting Deuteronomy 25, four there. And um, he's pulling out the principle. He's not dismissing what was said there. He says, what he's saying is, if God cares for a beast of burden, treading out grain all day, does he not also care for the pastor, for the preacher, for the apostle, the laborer for God's kingdom? Right? And he's, like, he's like, imagine that. Imagine a, a, a beast of burden getting duct tape slapped over its mouth, and in the hot summer sun has to tread out the grain, looking, looking at the grain that it could be eating and realizing it can, it can partake and it can't share in the hope of that harvest. Right? And I think what it, what it shows, what that illustration shows is the attitude of the owner of that beast of burden. Saying, you're going to work, you're going to work, you're going to work. I'm going to get, I'm going I'm to receive the benefits of your labor, but you're not going to get a dime from me. You're not going to get a dime from me. So keep working for free, but do, do not expect to share in the hope of the harvest. So that's the second thing he points them to. The third, Paul is just, I mean, this is his defense, man. Paul's a brilliant guy, so he just, he's letting us have it, letting the Corinthians have it. So reason number three is intrinsic justice. Intrinsic justice. Look at verses 11 through 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you... Do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Jesus Christ. We'll get back to verse 12 in our conclusion. But I love what he says here. He says, is it too much? Is it too much to ask? Is it, is it, is it evil in your sight that those who labor spiritually among you uh, uh, would get their living from their labor? Is that too much to ask? And there's uh, David Pryor, New Testament scholar, says this uh, in regards to this principle. He says, if we have been on the receiving end of spiritual blessing, we want to demonstrate our thankfulness to God in tangible ways. In agricultural communities, the area pastor, and in Africa, the bishop in particular, will not return from his itinerant ministry without a few chickens, a sheep, and a liberal supply of fruit and vegetables. And then he says, is such a harvest so unreasonable? Asked Paul. He's saying itinerant uh, a pastor or teacher or missionary in agricultural communities, uh, after he spent months or maybe years in that community, will leave rolling deep with half the farm, right? Like chickens, fruit, you know, all this stuff. Because because what God has sown spiritually in the lives and in the hearts of of, of, of those people, they want to manifest that in tangible ways and show their appreciation. The fourth thing Paul points them to is Jewish custom. Jewish custom, verse thirteen. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Paul's saying, is it just the old covenant leaders of the people of God, the priests who get their living and their sustenance from the temple, from from the people they're serving? Does that same principle not apply to the new covenant uh, leaders uh, of the people of God who are to get their work from the offerings of the people they are serving? And last and not least, if none of those four arguments landed for the Apostle Paul, he, uh, he has a linchpin argument. And the last one is, is, is the command of Jesus Christ. This fifth reason is the command of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. In the same way, in verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And he's uh, referencing uh, most likely Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 9 through 10, where Jesus sends out the apostles, and he gives them kind of a minimalist packing list, and basically the packing list is saying, don't pack anything, your needs will be met, and this is what it says, this is the New Living Translation. Don't take any money in your money bags, this is what Jesus says, don't take any money, no gold, no silver, copper coins, um, don't carry a traveler's back with a change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick, don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. Those who work deserve to be fed. And Jesus is saying there is take nothing with you because the people you serve will will supply your needs. Um, And so a simple summary of what Paul is saying here before we transition is it is okay for the gospel laborer to get financially supported for their gospel labor. And not that it's not just okay, but that it's actually God's design. It's God's intent. And so uh, what I want to do before we wrap up this section is challenge us. There's two ways, two toxic ways of thinking in the church today. One is the prosperity gospel. Simple summary of the prosperity gospel is Jesus makes you rich. Follow Jesus. He'll give you all the wealth you could ever imagine. Okay? That's the prosperity gospel. Hopefully all of us, we see that. We can see that it stinks for what it really is, and we don't buy into that, right? But the flip side of that coin is this thing called the poverty gospel, which is following Jesus makes you poor. And that in order to follow Jesus, most effectively, you actually have to liquidate all your assets and become poor. Call that the poverty gospel. In contrast to both of that is this thing called stewardship. Is stewarding that which God has given you. But for our intents and purposes today, if, if I'm being honest, I think um, we don't actually believe in either of those gospels, prosperity or poverty, but I think in the church today that some of us might believe that the poverty gospel actually applies to pastors, the pastors must be poor in order to be holy and to follow Jesus. And uh, a lot of disclaimers coming your way, okay? It brings me no joy to talk about this topic. It's extremely awkward for me because, obviously, of, of the dynamic here. I play, all right? Disclaimer number one. I'm extremely thankful for you guys, for our elders, okay? Y'all are generous. Uh, I have... Uh, um, this does not apply to this church. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. I can say that. Um, with gratitude in my heart. And secondly, second disclaimer, I'm not saying this, we're not preaching this text to get more money, to squeeze more money out of your pockets and give to the church. That's not our game. That's not what we're in the business of doing. We're just, what we do at the transit is we go through books of the Bible, which is beautiful because it makes us talk about things that we normally wouldn't talk about. Disclaimer number three, I've met a lot of pastors, and I know we see pastors on TV who are flying around in personal jets, and that's frankly evil. It's evil. Uh, it's, 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 that's the prosperity gospel and they are leading people to destruction. They're pointing people away from Jesus, which Paul would say this is wrong. He's probably say it harsher than I would. All the pastors I have met are not in it for the money because there ain't a lot of money in the pastoral calling. Okay. My calling into ministry was if you would have given me when I graduated college, a list of a thousand vocations, a pastor would not have been in the top a thousand. And the biggest reason why was because I felt the burden, I didn't have a wife or a kid, but that was something the Lord stirred in my heart to, I wanted that, is, is, is I felt the burden of providing from a family. And I knew a lot of pastors that were struggling to provide for their families, and I didn't want any, I didn't want that. And uh, it, it was due to a, well, on March 5th, 2010, the Lord, boom, called me into ministry, and it was awesome, and like confirmed by calling to ministry, but uh, a mentor friend of mine who is influential in me coming on staff at the church um, that was my response to him when he offered me this job for a whopping $5,000 a year to come on youth ministry staff. And uh, what he said was this. He, as I was going back and forth with him, one, one a late night after our youth group uh, meeting, and he said, Nick, the Lord will provide for you. The Lord provides. He's your provision. And what's cool, not just cool, what's amazing is how beyond blessed I have been in seeing God uh, uh, faithfully provide um, uh, for this pastor, who um, there were times where, yeah, a lot of times where I had to be bivoc- bivocational, and, uh, and I know, um, uh, yeah, and so all that to say, glory to God in, in how um, he provides, he provides, and all that to say this, this is what I'm getting at. I believe this principle applies to what Paul's saying. A church that has the means, and I know everything's situational, everything's situational, so some churches can't afford this, but if a church has the means, but refuses to adequately pay their pastor, that's a church that I would say is not being obedient to Christ and being obedient to his work, because Paul just listed out five reasons as to why, and not, and not, to, not to give them a million-dollar house and a bend, but to have their basic needs met and the, the needs of their family met as well. I think that's fair and reasonable, and, and, and I know Jeff and I are grateful that um, this church is generous in that regard to us. And so the mindset that we should adopt is First Thessalonians five twelve through 13. It's this, it says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. To esteem them very highly. Don't esteem me, esteem Jeff. He's out of town, so we'll pick on Jeff, okay? Um, and so my challenge would be this, is is what does this look like to esteem and to honor? Would just be simply this, like interactions with with the, the head pastor, Jeff, who's got a lot, a lot on his plate and all that stuff would be, are our interactions just giving from, or just taking from him or do we also seek to give? Do we always demand that he come and serve us or do we also try to seek and serve him? Because he's human, he has needs as well. Say, hey, how can I pray for you, not just you pray for me? How's your family doing, not just how's my family doing? How can I serve you rather than how can you just serve me? I think that's what it looks like, this mutual obligation to each other. Jeff didn't tell me to say that. Jeff probably doesn't even want me to say that. Um, so, but I think that was fitting. Don't do that to me, but yeah, to Jeff. Um, I'm not saying that on my behalf. And again, this is awkward for me to preach on this, um, which is why we're transitioning to my last point. Um, so after a lengthy defense of his rights, for material and financial support, what Paul does next is shocking. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, get out your checkbooks, make donations to the Apostle Paul at this address, and designate whether your gifts to me are going to be one time or monthly, right? Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he says, he says the shocking, he says, I died to all those rights. I didn't take a dime. I didn't take a penny from you. Even though, even though scripture says that I, I could have. And this is what he says, the, uh, verses 15 through 18. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. I'm not writing this to get you to pay me. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make any, uh, to, to not make full use of my rights in the gospel. What Paul is saying here is unthinkable. He deliberately chose not to get paid. And if I'm honest, I kind of wish he didn't say that. <laughs> he accepted not a dime of support, but rather chose to be a tent maker and to grade himself and to go low so that he didn't have to uh, burden or put any obstacle in the way of them coming to know and to follow Jesus. That's, and, and, and that's why we might be asking, say, well, why would Paul do this? And he says why in verse 12. We'll go back to verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That Greek word obstacle is a cutting into. It's, what, uh, it's a military term. It's what you would do to slow an enemy's advances. You would cut into a road and basically burn bridges so people couldn't get to where they needed to go. And Paul's saying, Paul saying this. This is a simple summary. He's saying, if in my ministry, I come across as a peddler of God's word, preaching and teaching to fill my pockets and giving people the impression that you have to pay your way into the kingdom of God. Woe is me. I receive this good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. I receive this gospel free of charge and now I'll endure anything, anything to present it freely and not put any stumbling block in the way of people seeing Jesus and following him. So, Newsflash, if Paul's in the 21st century, you wouldn't see him on TBN slicing open apples, pulling out seeds, and telling everyone, hey, sow your seed and God will multiply it a thousandfold, right? Anyone know who I'm talking about? Maybe you don't watch TBN as much as I do. You know, that's where I do most of my sermon prep. I watch. Okay, just kidding. Um, But this was Paul's boast. This was Paul's boast the free preaching of the gospel. And his reward, his payment for his labor was to preach without pay. That was his reward. And the beautiful truth that that, uh, comes out in this is Paul was so in love with Jesus and his calling to share the good news of who this Jesus is with others, that simply knowing Jesus and making this Jesus known was all he needed in life. He refused to take money from the Corinthians so that he could freely offer this Jesus to them and not make them think that they had to pay for his services. He was going to preach, and whether he got paid or not, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. He says, not only is that my reward, the issue at hand is I'm obligated. The gospel has bound me in a way to my fellow man, and he says this in verse 16, necessity is laid upon me. He says, says, woe is me. Woe is me if I don't preach, if my mouth does not preach this good news of who Jesus is. Woe is me. Whether I get paid or not is not the issue as much as the fact that I owe this gospel to the world. And my challenge to us would be, do we feel this gospel obligation? Do we know this Jesus and do we know him so much that it just brings us joy to share our testimony with other people? It's not evangelism. It's not witnessing. It's just sharing what, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It should be natural for us. It should overflow out of us when we understand the depth of his grace for us manifested in giving uh, of a son, Jesus, on our behalf. And so I'll, I'll wrap up with this. You might be asking, well, Nick, what does it look like to uh, be f- set free by the gospel and yet bound? What does it look like to forfeit wealth for the sake of others? What does that look like? And uh, I had a Greek professor when I was in seminary who told this story about his parents. All his life, he thought he was poor. His parents were dentists, successful dentists, and he thought they were broke all his life until he applied for colleges. And then all of a sudden, he saw, one, all the money his parents had and how much money they made a year, and he like, confronted them. And he's like, what in the world? We're living in this house. We're driving these cars. I'm wearing these clothes. I thought we were poor and we're actually super wealthy. What, what's going on? And his parents sat him down. They had to do some reframing work of his mindset, and I'll never forget this. Uh, they basically told him, if I'm remembering this story correctly, is, is this is, hey, we know that we could have lived in lavish wealth and luxury and had the big house and all this stuff, but we knew this. We knew that we wanted to host people, those outside the church, those in the church, both the, the rich but also the poor, and that when a poor brother or sister would come over and they would see our fine Italian granite countertops or marble or whatever and, and our, our big fancy houses, that, that would put a stumbling block in the way of them following Jesus. And we didn't want to do that. We don't want to put any stumbling block in the way of people following Jesus. And so when we hosted people, all the money that we would have spent on the fancy house and the nice cars, all stuff, we now spend on the food. Have you noticed how good our food game is? Right? (laughs) Best wine, best fillets. Like if you're coming over to our house, we're going to give you the best food. They took the hit. They went low. They descended down to their weaker brother to bless them. Why? Because they were so in love with Jesus that they wanted to point other people to Jesus, that they were willing to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of Jesus and, buy, and, and drive a beat-up car and, and live in, in a somewhat beat-up house. And, then, and now what his parents are doing is they have also laid aside their retirement, and now they're medical missionaries. I believe it's Honduras, but they're like in the slums of Honduras providing free dental care there. That's their retirement, he said. That's their retirement plan. They forfeited that to go serve Jesus. And they're doing such great work that the gang leaders... Uh, in that town have granted them immunity and they said if anyone touches these two people who are giving free dentist work, you know We're gonna we're gonna hurt you Like they got immunity from the gang members is that is that not cool. And so And so an application would be this a common application you might hear and that I might be tempted to, to, to Say would be this would all right Christians stop being selfish now and start giving Just cut it out Don't be greedy Americans follow Jesus, you know go give right that'd be a common application However, the problem with that is our hearts. That's the problem, that's the issue. This is what I mean by that. As long as our comfort, as long as our wealth, as long as my safety and my family's safety is more precious and valuable to me than Jesus, and making him known, I will never forfeit any of those things to follow Jesus. Because the second you and I become comfortable following Jesus, we most assuredly are not following this Jesus because he calls us to do difficult things. He calls us out of comfort and into a, a, a far more abundant life than a life lived sacrificing our lives to trifles, the idols of wealth and comfort, the American dream. And so if we love our wealth more than we love Jesus, we'll never lay aside our wealth. We won't give a... Dime to a person asking on the street, to, uh, to someone we know that, that needs uh, not just a, a high five and a $5 Starbucks gift card, but maybe like a couple grand. And so the flip side of that is this. When Jesus is our life, When Jesus is our joy, when Jesus becomes that that treasure hidden in a field that you give everything to purchase, then you can say, take my wealth, Jesus is better. You can say, take my safety, Jesus is better. Take my life, Jesus is better. And when we can say that, the sky's the limit for what God can accomplish uh, through his people, through his church, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Do we know this Jesus? And my hope, my prayer this morning, in my own heart, is I've been convicted of this, there's a prayer that I share with you as well, that I want the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us and stir our hearts to truly treasure and value Jesus and stop living the Christian life in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit, overcome with love and adoration for our Savior. and Not just know, but actually feel and experience who he is and what he's done for us so that we can echo what Paul says here in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 9. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost, listen, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you're here today, um, and, and, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but in your heart, uh, your heart has grown cold. And lifeless and lukewarm, I pray the spirit would breathe life, that dead bones become flesh this morning. Because, because this Jesus is too great for us to, to just go through the motions. This God is too powerful for us to continue to live in our own strength. And if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, would you cry out to him in faith today? He won't make you poor. He won't make you rich. He'll give you, he'll give you the best gift he could ever give you, and that's himself knowledge of God, the very reason you exist is to know God, and Jesus Christ has made that possible. Would you reach out to him in faith and and say this prayer, Jesus Christ, I know you don't say no to invites. Would you come into my life right now, and would you do what that bald man up there up front says you can do and raise the dead to life? Would you do that in my life right now and surrender your life to him? And, And listen, you can take what he says to the bank. He raises the dead to life. And he can do that for you today. And so what I'm going to do this morning is uh, we're not just going to rush into prayer. I'm going to give us a moment uh, of silence where you guys uh, just ask you to bow your heads and pray. I'm not going to have you raise hands or, or whatever. You can just, you know, go on your iPhones for all I care. But uh, 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 what I want, what I want to do is create an opportunity for, for, uh, for you and for me especially to bring our hearts to the Lord. Just a minute or two. Say, Lord, here's my heart. Would you do a diagnostic test? Say, where, where am I chasing after? Where am I staking my life in other things that aren't you? And Jesus, would you bring revival in my heart? Holy Spirit, would you come and give me a true love so that I can echo what Paul says and I can actually see you as surpassing, uh, surpassingly greater than anything else this world can offer? Because if you're honest, maybe you're honest, you're saying, because I don't see you that way this, this morning. So let's quiet ourselves. Let's cry out to the Lord in faith and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, your word in Psalm 32 says this, says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you offer us in Christ Jesus. Sin, death no longer has a hold, no longer has any say in our lives, Jesus, because what you have accomplished for us. I love the conclusion of this psalm. It says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Knowing you, Jesus, causes us to shout for joy, knowing your forgiveness, your grace, your peace. And I pray for some of us here that you'd restore to us today the joy of our salvation. So Holy Spirit, fall upon us. Holy Spirit, uh, be poured out into the hearts in each and every one of us here. Uh, Give us eyes to see you for how truly valuable and precious you are, that you're the God above all gods. You're the king of all kings, and you are a great God. So, Spirit, would you you do that? Would you give us that grace? So, we thank you, um, Jesus, that unlike us who demand that we don't lay aside our rights or freedoms for the sake of others, you left your throne for us, to call us back to God so God could scoop us as a parent scoops up their child and scoops us into his arms and call us a beloved son and a beloved daughter. So thank you for the work that you've done on our behalf. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.